Bible says in Philippians that God is at work in you. I want to say that again. God is at work in you. God. Not the government, not your pastor, not your wife, not your husband. God. They all may try to work on you, but only God can work in you. We try to work on each other, but I'll save you a lot of heartache. Only God can work in you. And Philippians 2 says, God is at work in you, both to will and to do His good pleasure. And that's the key. When we're committed to do His will and His good pleasure, we release Him to do the work in us. Well, we've been learning about that. Tonight, I believe, I prayed, I'm exercising my faith. We are going to bring to a conclusion this series on renewing the mind. Some of you are shaking your heads. You're not so sure. But I, uh, uh, oh ye of little faith, why do you doubt? <laughs> We've talked about, and we're not going to go back over any of that because we won't finish. This is such an important subject. The Bible says that God has deposited things in, our, in us. When you come to Christ, God has put His kingdom in you. We began the study by looking at all that God has put in us, all that God, the potential, not will put in us, but has already put in us, and then we began to look at how much of that are we experiencing in our life. And we saw this was this huge deficit, all that God has put in us, and we're living and experiencing so little of it. And then we saw in Romans 12, verse 2, that it tells us the process. It says, therefore be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that we are not to be conformed to this world, but we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind that we may prove what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. So this whole weeks that we've been going on to study this and breaking it down how the mind works, breaking down the process by which your mind works, and then breaking down the process that the Bible teaches about what renewing the mind means. And then for, we've been, over the last few weeks, studying different tools that God's given us, confession and what that means, and, 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 and meditation and other tools that we've learned. And now, having brought that all down to the conclusion, there's one last subject we need to cover. Because in, unless this subject becomes real to us, all this study, all your positive reaction to it and excitement about it won't ever affect you unless we get over this last hump. What we're going to talk about tonight is the attitude of change. The attitude of change. Because unless you have an attitude to change, you won't change. And what you'll do is you'll get excited, you'll get encouraged, you'll read the books, you'll, you'll listen to the CDs, you'll study the lessons, but the only way it will become a reality in your life is if you are willing to change. Because we are transformed, which means changed, by the renewing of our mind. But you can want to be transformed and have an attitude that fights the transformation. And so we're going to talk about an attitude tonight. Not a bad attitude like they got a chip on their shoulder, but what an attitude is. First of all, uh, Webster's Miriam Dictionary, one of the definitions it gives is a mental state. I'll talk about that in a minute. With regard to a fact or a state of being. Let me put it this way. An attitude is a predetermined way that your mind sees things. In some contexts, it's called prejudiced. 
We have a predetermined attitude about certain people based either on the color of their skin or their nationality or their age. You just have to know that they're in that category and you automatically make certain assumptions about them without knowing them or ever meeting them. That's an attitude. That's a predetermined way of looking at some. Predetermined means it's already been worked out before you're in the situation. I want to dwell on that a minute because that's important to understand that. And this is why this is so crucial. We all have them. We were taught them as children. We were taught them in school. We pick up attitudes of our parents and of our family. We pick whether, regardless of what it's about, whether it's about race or whether it's about politics or whether it's about life or whether it's about God or church. There are all predetermined, there are attitudes that we've developed, that ways of looking at things that were taught us that we didn't even experience on our own. They were programmed into us through all the kinds of things that we've studied, and you're carrying those around in this mind that we've got to renew. We talked at one point about the mind is a gateway. The mind determines what information, what inspiration, what anything from God, what gets down inside of you. Your mind is a gate that determines how much of that and to what degree it gets down inside of you. It also determines that how much of what's inside of you actually comes out. So the predetermined ways of looking at things that are ingrained in your mind are part of the strongholds that we looked at. They're controlling. But you have a predetermined attitude about change. Not just things in the Word of God. We all have a reaction, a set view of looking at change. And we may have some similarities, but each one of us has our own attitude about change. What it means is it's, it's something that you already believe is right or wrong, true or false. Or what you've already decided you're willing to do or not willing to do. We talked about early on, we talked about the soul is made up of the mind, the will, and the emotions. And in that discussion, we talked about the fact that the will is what it's all about. There's a battle going on for your will right now between God and the Spirit of God who is wooing your will into His will and the Satan and the enemy who's trying to pressure you, pull you, tempt you to exercise your will towards what He wants done. So the battle field is the mind, but the goal of the battle is your will. Because nobody, I don't care what buttons you may think you have, I don't care what you, how much you think people control you and don't control you, nobody can make you do something you don't want to do. God can't do it. Because if He could, everybody gets saved. Because it's not His will that any should perish, but, it all, that all, but His will that all should come into a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's God's will that all be saved, but our wills don't always line up. In fact, very often don't line up with God's will. He'll woo you, pressure you, He'll, 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 he'll draw you, but He has to do that because He can't make you. Now, if God can't make you, why do we think anybody else can? And yet, listen to yourself sometime. Oh, they make me feel terrible. This makes me do this. That makes me... Nobody makes you do anything you don't agree to do. I discovered that reading a, a, a story about a, a Christian psychologist, and he was, really opened my eyes up to this. 
because we're all ingrained with this. And if I get on this, we won't get done tonight, but this is worthwhile looking at. And it's this. He said, because a woman came to him, and she was discouraged. She wanted to leave her husband, and she was, you know, just disgusted with life. She was had it. And then he discovers she's a pastor's wife. And he said, what's the matter? She said, I, I, I hate where we're living. I don't like the town we're in. And she, he said, well, why did you go there? Well, my husband made me go there. He said, wait a minute, you're what? My husband made, us, made me move there. He said, what did you say? She said, my husband made me move there. He said, oh, he tied you up in duct tape, threw you in the trunk, and hasn't let you loose since? Oh, no, 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 no. Well, that's the way he would make you do it. But he didn't tie you up, did No. He may have influenced you. He may have put pressure on you. He may have manipulated you. All of those were designed to get you to exercise your will to line up with what he wanted you to do, but he couldn't make you do it. It's important to understand how, how important your exercise of your will is when it comes to renewing your mind. You can learn all the principles, you can do all the exercises, you can take all the tools, but if you haven't decided to change, you ain't going to change. So that's why we have to deal with this issue before we get off this subject. Your attitude determines before you hear or see anything what you're already open to. As parents, we call it selective hearing. It's the difference between telling your children we're going to have ice cream tonight or telling them you're going to clean your room. You mention ice cream in our family and everybody, especially when I was growing up, I was one of five boys, you just had to hear the hint of the word because we didn't get it every night. And we were lined up in the kitchen. But when I knew we were going to rake leaves, because I know raking leaves is under the curse. I know it's raking leaves is under the curse. I know there can't be leaves in heaven that you've got to rake, because that's how I grew up, thinking that was the hard, worst thing you could possibly get me to do. So if I had a hint we were going to rake leaves, it just went in one ear and out the other. Now, my hearing was just the same physiologically for ice cream as it was for leaves, the difference in what I heard was what I was open to hear, and that was based on what I was willing to do and what I was not willing to do. Well, guess what? Just because you grew up doesn't mean those habits haven't changed. The issues may no longer be ice cream and cleaning your room, but it may be willing to do what God wants you to do. I have people come to me sometimes and say, Pastor, I'm just having so much trouble discerning God's will about something. I say, well, the starting place is to find out what are you willing to do. Because the, the, how willing you are determines how open you are to hear. If you're only willing to look in certain areas, that's all you're going to be open to hear. And God may not be speaking in that area. And so you'll find the best way, the easiest way, to be open to hear the voice of God is to be willing to do whatever He wants. In fact, that's not only good advice, it's a scriptural command. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes. So your attitude determines ahead of time what you are able to hear and what you are able to see and therefore what you're able to do. A predetermined willingness of what you will, are willing to do with the truth that you hear. Turn with me to Ezekiel 33. 
Ezekiel 33. It's on page 1094. Well, it is. It says right here, 1094. God has called the prophet Ezekiel, sent him to this nation. Verse 30. It says, As for you, son of man, the children of your people are talking about you. Preacher, they're talking about you out there. Beside the walls and in the doors of the houses, and they're speaking to one another. And everyone is saying to his brother, Please, come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. And man, you need to hear this guy. Wow, can he speak for God? He says, they're talking about you out there. So they come to you as people do. They sit before you as my people. And they hear your words, but they do not do them. For, their, for with their mouth they show much love, but their hearts pursue their own gain or their own will. Indeed, and as a result, this is what you're like to them. You are like a very lovely song of one who has a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument. For they hear your words, but they do not do them. And when this comes to pass, surely and surely it will come, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. He said, they love to hear you talk. They love to hear the anointing. They love to hear the wisdom and the anointing that comes from you. And they talk about it. And they love to hear it. And they'll say to others, come and hear this word. Come and hear what, what I've heard. And when they come, they enjoy what you're saying just as if they would enjoy a beautiful instrument or a beautiful voice. In other words, but they have no intention of changing what they do based on what they've heard. And the result is, God says, in reality, their experience with me is just like any other form of entertainment. That's what my mother used to do. (laughs) Just like any other form of entertainment. We enjoy what we're hearing. We enjoy what we get out of it. I mean, think of some good movie you've seen, worthwhile movie that you've told other people about or some concert that you've been to. Good Christian concert or something here. It's like, wow, wasn't that wonderful? But it's over, isn't it? It was an experience you had that you enjoyed, was uplifting, and what you have left of it are pleasant memories. But they're gone. And God is telling him, that we come and hear the Word of God, we come and experience the anointing of God, God speaking to us, and if we don't come with the attitude as I'm going to take this and apply it in my life, then it's no different than going to a good movie or a good play or a good concert in terms of its effect and its change on us. Sobering words. James chapter 1.
Verse 21. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness, overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. He's not talking about whether you get into heaven or not. The word save there is a word that means more than just getting into heaven. It means bring your salvation to the outside. Just what we're talking about. So the word of God deposited in you, implanted in you, is able to produce that change in you to to, to bring that change about. However, but be doers of the word and not hearers only. Look at this, deceiving yourselves. So when we hear the word, get excited about it, which is fine, we should. Enjoy it, and that's fine, and we should. But we don't hear it with the intention of applying it and letting it change us. Then James says, we deceive ourselves. Now there's enough deception out there tempting us as it is without us doing it to ourselves. The Bible says in the last days, and I believe we're there, many are going to fall away. Many are going to be deceived. It's one thing to get tricked, tempted by the devil and deceived. It's another thing to do it to yourself. But the Bible says that when we hear without the intention of applying that to change us, then we deceive ourselves. How, do we de- How is it that we deceive ourselves? Because we think that the temporary feeling we have, because when you hear the Word of God, it encourages, it builds up faith. Faith comes by hearing. So when you hear the Word of God, the hearing of that Word begins to deposit faith in you that you can change. So that begins to lift you up. That begins to encourage you. So you may leave a, a, a study on the renewing the mind feeling encouraged. But if you that what we can do then, if we don't then take what we've learned and apply it, we assume that that feeling of encouraged is the same thing as change. You following what I'm saying? Because we are so much trained to go by our feelings. Well, I came to church tonight. I didn't even want to come. It was Wednesday night and I came. And that's wonderful because there are a lot of people that could have been here that didn't make that choice. And we leave here feeling better, feeling encouraged better than we came in here. But if, if, if you then don't apply what you learn, and this talks to me as much as you, then what happens is we leave feeling good thinking that feeling good is the same thing as change. The problem is it's not. And then over a period of time, when you don't see change, when the same things keep happening over and over again, you do one of two things. You learn to live in this Christian dichotomy, two worlds, which I have my church world. Praise God. I'm blessed. How are you? I'm blessed. Everything's, oh, I'm blessed. Everything's so good. I'm blessed. I'm doing well. You're doing well. Yes. And then we've got another world out there where everything's falling apart. And we learn to accept the two. So this is the pretend world that we do in church, but that's the real world out there. Or the other thing that happens when we become deceived like that is we get discouraged and just fall away. This stuff doesn't work. I've been doing this for a long time. It doesn't work. The Word of God doesn't work. The question is, have you been doing what the Word of God says? Because God's Word is the truth. When I say this doesn't work, and God says it does, one of us is wrong. I'll save you a lot of heartache. Thirty-some years of walking with the Lord, 
I've realized I'm always the one that's wrong, which is going to lead into another one of our points. Okay, so the attitude of change is so important to be willing to change. God wants to help us to change. That is His goal, is to bring, is literally to change you into the image of Christ. That's what He wants to do. That involves change. He's already changed our nature. We've looked at that. He's given us His Word. He's given us His Word with all the power that's in that Word to bring that change about. Jesus defeated the devil, your opponent. First John says, For this reason was the Son of God manifest, that He might destroy the works of the evil one. Colossians 2 said, He disarmed principalities and power, made a public show of them openly. Chapter 1, verse 13 of Colossians says, He transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Satan's loose in the world, but He doesn't have authority to control you unless you give it to Him. He's put His Spirit in us to help us. But we determine how much of His Word, how much of His Spirit, how much of His grace can produce that change in us. We determine how effective they are in us. So I'm going to give you some principles about change that are so important. The first principle about change, the first attitude we have to have is we need the desire to change. Let me talk to that in a moment because this can be very subtle but so important. A lot of times people come to us, and of course they come to us and they lay their problems on the table in the conference room and expect we're going to fix it. 22 years of doing certain things, and in 20 minutes we're going to fix it. But one of the things I'm listening for as somebody's sharing is what is it you're... What is it you want? What are you looking for? I've learned over the years that we cannot assume that somebody wants help. Say, what? Well, they wouldn't come to you if they don't want help. No, many people just want relief. Many people just want the pressure taken off. Because when you're going through a difficult time, there's pressure. There's pressure, you may be having trouble sleeping, you just, whether it's financial pressure, physical pressure, in many cases it's relationships. It may be relationship between parents and children, it may be relationships between a husband and wife, it may be family, other family relationships, and those are pressuring, they're wearing down, or circumstances, or somebody that's, you know, they've, they've, they're, they're, they've gone their whole life, never had a budget, abused credit cards, and then come to us with $30,000 in debt and want us to get them out in 30 minutes. Well, you don't get into that fast, you're not likely to get out of it that fast. But what they want is the, sometimes is the pressure off. But that's not desiring to change. That's desiring to get the pressure off. That's desiring to get relief, not change. So many only want relief. Well, the other thing they're sometimes looking for is comfort. I want to be comforted through this. I want to know it's going to be okay, but I don't want to change. They want to change the circumstances, not perhaps change them. We shared Sunday about 
going through difficult times and about not getting weary in those difficult times. And I shared with you one of the important attitudes to have about a difficult time is there may be some value in this difficult time, something that I can bring out of this experience so that first of all, the first thing I get out of a bad experience is I don't ever want to go through it again. I mean, if you've gone through the same problem over and over and over again and it hasn't dawned on you, you don't want to do that anymore, I question whether you really want to change yet. Because if you're willing to put up with that same mess over and over and over again, then you don't really yet, I question whether you really yet want to, there's no condemnation in it. The beginning of everything with God is finding out where you are. Because I'll let you in a secret, God knows. Probably most people around you know. Often we're the last ones to find out where we are. We'll get to that in a minute. We want to see the circumstances change, but we don't want to change. We want others to change, but we don't want to change. We're kind of like the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt. You know why they didn't get into the promised land? Because their goal wasn't to get in the promised land. Their goal was to get out of Egypt. Their goal was to get out of the pressure of being under a taskmaster who made them do what they didn't want to do. But when they got out of, the, out of the bondage, what they discovered is along with the freedom from the bondage came certain responsibilities. While they were a slave, they had bondage, but they had no responsibilities. They didn't have to worry about where the leeks and the onions and the food was coming from because it was given to them along with the assignment to make straw. But once they got out from underneath the bondage and the pressure and got out in the wilderness, now they found that God expected them to grow in faith. God expected them to learn how to trust Him. He didn't expect it all at once, but He expected them to grow in that. And if you read Deuteronomy 7 and Deuteronomy 8, you'll find some of the things that God led them through were designed to develop in them a faith and a confidence in God so that when they got to the promised land, they would enter it. God didn't stop them from entering it. The giants and the, 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 the obstacles there didn't stop them from entering it. They stopped themselves from entering it. Why? Because they weren't willing to go through what it took to get in there. Why? Because they didn't leave Egypt because they wanted to go to the promised land. They left Egypt because they wanted to get out from underneath the pressure. Once the pressure was off, they reverted back to all the old ways. And that's what happens with many of us. We get into the Word, we begin to listen to tapes or CDs, we watch DVDs, we, we do things to begin to build our faith up and develop and find out what it is we got to do. We begin to feel encouraged, we begin to feel hope begins to rise up in us, and, we be, and then we don't go any further with that. We don't do what it says to do, or we try it for a little while. And then what happens is, we end up back in that same situation. And one of the reasons we don't do it is because that wasn't our, our goal was never to change. Our goal was to get out from underneath the pressure. Second thing we need. So the first is a desire to change. You need to ask yourself that. Do I really want to change? Or do I just want things better? Do I really want change? Because, see, change is unfamiliar. People will live in abusive situations as horrible as they are because they're more afraid of the change 
than they are of the abusive situation with all the pain and agony and fear that goes with it. I've met with some of the people like that. I've encouraged them. What you need to do is get out of it. And they know that's right, but they can't let go. And the reason they can't let go is they're more afraid of something new. They're more afraid of the change than they are of the difficult situation that they're in. It's very hard to help somebody like that because their will is not involved in getting out of it. Second thing, there has to be an openness. By openness, I mean a teachability. A willingness to look honestly at yourself. We're really good at looking honestly at other people. But I'll tell you even a clue there. Because when you're looking honestly at other people, in reality, you're looking at yourself. Because the Bible teaches us, and I discovered this a long time ago before I even found the Scripture, that the things that we so easily see in other people, the reason we see them so easily in other people is because they're already in ourselves. I would notice sometimes there were some things people could do that obviously were needed to grow and mature, just didn't bother me at all. Then there were some things that just got under my skin. So I begin, see, but when that happens, I ask questions. All right, God, why? Why, why, is, why does this one thing they do really drive me up a wall and the other thing just doesn't bother me? The Lord took me to a scripture where Jesus talked about judging one another. He said, why do you try to take the speck out of your brother's eye when there's a log in yours? I was meditating and it dawned on me the reason I, because a speck or a splinter is the one he uses. A splinter is a piece of a log. Same material. The reason I can recognize that's a splinter is because I'm looking at the splinter through a log. I can recognize that piece of wood because I've got that piece of wood in me also. And the reason I want to look at it in them it's because when I look at it them, I don't have to look at what I see in me. But see, if I'm not willing to look at myself honestly, if all I do is look at what's wrong with everybody else, I may get everybody else straightened out, but they're still me. God wants to talk to me. I found out God doesn't talk to me about other people a lot. He's not telling me what's wrong with other people a lot. He may point things out about other people, but because he's working in me on me. I can't find a scripture that says, God is at work in you to straighten out your wife or your husband or your children. God's not at work. He's at work in me to do his goodwill in me. And when all I'm doing is looking at what other people are doing, that's a way of diverting attention from me. As my mentor said, say either say, oh me, or oh my. <laughs> Openness, teachability. Another thing it means you've got to be willing to do is let things go. If you're not willing to let things go, you won't change. Kind of like spring cleaning, cleaning out a closet or cleaning out the attic. I come from a professional family of collectors. 
not necessarily valuable things, but things that we might use someday. And I've had to deal with that because I find that habit, you can see that thinking gets ingrained in there. Well, I might use this someday, so I'll put it away. And I look at it a year later, I've, not only what, have I not used it, I forgot I had it. And if the occasion to use it came up, I'm not sure I would have realized I had this thing. So I kind of develop a rule, which I don't follow all the time, which is I haven't used it in a year, most likely I'm not going to. But that's not just true with stuff in your attic or stuff in your closet. It's true with stuff in our life. Things we keep in our life and our thinking that we're not willing to let go of. So it's an openness. The next one. This is a biggie. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 1. We could spend a series on this, and I probably will at some point, because I began to see something today that was growing in me. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we've heard from him and declare to you that God is light. Light represents truth. It also represents light, but it represents truth. God is light. He's truth. And in Him is no darkness at all. If we say, talking about the same subject here, if we say we have fellowship with Him, the word fellowship is an overworked spiritual term. It basically means a sharing together, being in common. If we say we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light or the truth, as He is in the light or the truth, we have fellowship or relationship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Notice He ties forgiveness and cleansing from sin with walking in truth. The Greek word for truth here is aletheia, which is an interesting word. It means nothing hidden, nothing concealed, or Reality is basis of appearance. We live in a society right now where there's a huge difference between reality and appearance. Our entire entertainment industry is based on illusion and not reality. We have professional actors, and I'm not criticizing anybody, I'm just saying it's a reality. We have professional actors actors that somehow because they can act makes them an authority on other issues. But you know what an actor is? Somebody who's skilled at pretending. Something's true that's not true. So if that's what they're good at, why do I put them up as an authority for what truth is? when their only claim to fame is they know how to fool us. But we're being lulled in our society by a craving for entertainment and advertising and our entire culture and our entire economy to a large degree is fueled by pretending things are true that aren't true. And we're losing the ability to recognize truth from illusion. Because we buy devices, and I got them too, that tell us what's real, 
tell us what to think. Tell us how to do things so that we never either develop or if we've developed, we don't exercise and we forget how to think for ourselves. Somehow God built in me, and I don't know whether it was through my legal training or just one of those stubborn things he put in me, is just because somebody says something's true doesn't mean I'm going to believe it. What is the basis of your authority? Somebody comes, well, they say, who's they? I used to drive my wife up a wall because who's they? Well, the, I want to know who they is because if they is a bunch of idiots, why am I going to listen to them? Just because they. I had somebody come to me a while ago and say, well, in the church, they're saying such and such. I said, who's they? Well, I said, I want to know whose they are. Well, it's, when it came out, it was two people. Two people were they, and because of that, I was supposed to change something in the church. We've got to learn to think. Recognize what truth is. And here's what began to go off in me today. But first of all, so this word truth, and we're not going to finish tonight. (laughs) This word truth, in the vernacular, is what you see is what you get. Nothing's hidden. Not pretending anything. I, it, is what it, it look, it is what it looks like it is. You've heard me go over this. There's just so, so profound principle in the Bible. The last verse of Genesis 2 says, And they were both naked, and they were not ashamed. That word doesn't just refer to whether they had clothes on or not. It also referred to their state of mind. They had nothing to hide. So they had no pretense, no, no falsity. They were just said what they meant, acted like they what they meant. Nothing hidden. But you don't have to get very far to chapter 3 and you see that changes dramatically. Because what happens? Sin enters. The moment sin enters, what did they do? They hid and they covered themselves with leaves. And that's so significant of what we try to do is we try to cover ourselves, protect ourselves from things that make us uncomfortable. We protect ourselves from truth. And here's a choice you've got to make. And this is what was going off in me today. Truth is one of the most powerful forces that exists. Why? Because God is truth. And truth confronts us. Pastor friend of mine years ago, I heard him say this and I've never forgotten it because we get defensive about this. The truth is narrow and it is exclusive. It is either true or it's not true. Let me bring that down to where we live. It's really simple. Two plus two is four. When I was in college, when I was in school growing up, I I had a bad start in math. I just, for whatever reason, and I had a mental attitude towards math that I couldn't do it. But in college, I had to take one math course. And they had in the curriculum something called new math. That attracted me. Because somehow that implied to me I could get a fresh start. 
And it, it started with theories that were different. They were new theories. And I'm listening to all these new theories, and it dawned on me, I don't care what new theories they had, I had this conviction, that when that math teacher came down to having their paycheck calculated, they used the old math. You can have all the theories about what numbers could mean or couldn't mean, but when you take my 40 hours and multiply it times my rate, I want you to use the old math, not what the, not what the registrar likes to use. So 2 plus 2 is 4. That's very narrow. That means it can't be 5. It can't be 3. It can't be what you want it to be. So not only is it narrow, but it excludes other answers. But I don't have a problem with that, do you? Because it's the truth. The reason people have a problem with the truth is they don't like the truth. They want it to be five. Because I didn't study for the test. And I put in there what I thought my answer ought to be. And the teacher comes back with a red mark and says, no, the correct answer is four. But I wrote down five. I think she's being narrow-minded. Why can't five be the answer? Because the reason I don't want it to be four is I didn't study. (laughs) Four exposes something in me I don't want to look at. So I want the option of it being five or three or ten or whatever I want. Because then it doesn't look, I don't have to look at me. I don't have to change. And we've got a world that totally ignores truth now. They don't care about truth. In fact, the postmodernism is teaching our kids there is no such thing as truth. So now there's nothing to even argue about. The hypocrisy is they all operate in truth all the time when it comes to dealing with things in life. So even their philosophy is not true, consistent. And here's what it comes down to. What are you seeking? Are you seeking truth? Because if you're seeking truth, you can look at the fact that, oh, I'm wrong about this because I now discover what the truth is. So I'll let go of what I was wrong about because what I really want is truth. But if, what, if I'm after is not truth, but to be right, then when I'm presented with the truth, I'll find some way to get rid of the truth because what I care about is being right. I don't care about the truth. I see preachers doing that with this. They take this and they pull together scriptures to make it say what they want it to say instead of reading this to find out what it says. I've got to be willing. I sat with a pastor today. Talk with him because we're trying to get some pastors together to develop some relationship with each other. And of course, the minute you do that, you start getting into doctrinal issues. And I sat with him. I said, look, I had no issue with him, but there were some others that had raised some doctrinal issues that really just didn't want to be associated with me, not personally, but because of things that they know this church believes. And I said, look, there's certain things that, that I won't, that, that, that we have to all agree on. Real basic things like, Jesus is our Savior. You know, really simple things that we do all agree on. But I looked at this pastor and I said, and I've shared this with my congregation, 
I said, I can't be so adamant about things, everything, because I'll tell you right now, sitting here across from you, I know right now I'm not right about everything. Don't get up and leave. (laughs) And I said, but I also know something about you. You're not right about everything either. Now, there's some things I know I'm right about because I see them in here. The point is this. There are things I've taught for years, nothing really critical, but suddenly I'll see a scripture and amazement. You know what? I may not be quite so sure about this as I thought I was. I've got a choice to make now. And what I, am I after truth or am I after something to justify what I believe? And that's an act of your will to decide what you're after. But I'll tell you this much, if you're not after truth, you will be deceived. And deception is the most dangerous place you can get. Why? Because you're convinced you're right. And nobody can convince you're wrong. And you can find scriptures and all kinds of people to back you up in your deception. And you'll congregate around other people that are deceived. And the danger is you won't know it. So how do we know whether we're deceived or not? Well, one of the crucial things is to maintain your relationship with Jesus. Because when you start to get off, there's an alarm that will go off in here. The Spirit of God is in you as a warning to protect you. But see, if you're not interested in the truth, you'll override the warning. You'll override the warning. My car has a series of alarms, not just a burglar alarm. But I don't, my car doesn't have a key that you put. It's one of these things you carry around with you. And if I get out of the car, or, or sometimes I'll do something, and I'll get be- something beeps in the car. I don't know what the beep means, but I know this much. Something's wrong. So I'm not going to get out of the car and leave it until I find out what it's trying to tell me is wrong. Because I, I made that mistake before. I've gotten out, ignored the beep, and found out that the key's in the car, and I'm outside. So that warning was trying to help me to find the truth that I was ignorant of. And if I decide to just to override that, I'm going to find something's happening I don't want to happen. So I may not know what the alarm means, but I know this much. It means don't move till you find out what's wrong. You have an alarm in here. And the more you override it, the harder it is to hear, the fainter the voice. We need to live in, understand me carefully, we need to live in a godly fear of that. I don't mean be running around afraid, oh, I don't know if I'm hearing right. I don't mean that, because that paralyzes you. But we take far too granted the alarm of the Spirit of God inside us, the warning that He's in there to give us. He's in there to direct us. Colossians 3, I think it says, let, let, let peace be the umpire in your heart. That word umpire, that means umpire. It means, it says in, to, to be your, to, to be, let peace rule. But the word rule there doesn't mean rule over. It means to provide a direction, a yes or no, like an umpire. And we live so much of our lives carrying out our will when sometimes that alarm in there is saying, mm, mm, and we run right through it. Now, most of the time, it's ignorance. We need to learn to develop more of a sensitivity. 
But there's sometimes it's not ignorance. It's just I don't want to pay attention. When I choose that, I'm not choosing truth. I'm choosing my own way. And here's the problem. I'll never change if I'm not willing to embrace truth. I won't change if I'm not willing to embrace truth. We're going to stop here tonight. We'll pick up here next time with truth and we'll move on because there's two others I want to cover and then I want to cover certain attitudes, that we, uh, certain areas where we can renew our mind. So we do have one more mind. I intended, <laughs> but this was something that went off in me today and I just felt we needed to spend the time on it and to follow what the Spirit of God, I believe, was leading us to talk about tonight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight that you are a God of truth and that you deal with us only in truth. But we thank you, Lord, that when we walk in truth, not only will you correct us, but you can forgive us. It's only when we face the truth that we can receive the cleansing of your blood. It's only when we face the truth and acknowledge where we are that we can receive your help. Because when we pretend we're somewhere else or think we're somewhere else, you can't come to where we're not. You only come to where we really are. So, Father, tonight I ask you by your Spirit for each of us tonight. For all of us need some kind of change in our lives. Not just change from the outside, but change from the inside. Because none of us yet are there. If the Apostle Paul wasn't there yet, then certainly we're not there yet. Which means all of us need to allow you to bring change into our lives. So, Father, where we've not been willing to change, show us. Where we've not been willing to deal in truth, show us that. Where we've not been open, Lord, to let go of things and open to learn and to change, show us that. We thank you, Lord. The hope we have tonight, the confidence we have tonight is that you are at work in us to bring about this change. Teach us how to cooperate with you in that work. In Jesus' name.